General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast, a podcast covering Blood Red Skies, a game of World War II aerial combat. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, we are just me and Brett here tonight. How you doing, Brett? Great. We don't have our fearless leader with us. He is on the way to Reno. Well, anyway, he told us he was on the way to Reno. God knows where Doug's actually going. So you guys were able to get together and work through some of the um, the initial missions. But before that, you, you told me you've been having a little bit of frustration with the metal models. So so what's going on with the Stukas, man? Oh, yeah. You know, I've, I've got a bunch of prog. Uh, a bunch of uh, projects to, for this Malta campaign. And uh, the la the one I'm working on now is the Stukas. And I, I, I talked about it on a previous episode that I had decided to, you know, try out the metal models, not so much because I, you know, had any great affinity for metal models, but just so that, uh, you know, I could maybe answer the mail and any questions out there about how to handle those. Because at the time, there was some questions on, uh, I think I saw a thread on Ready Room where folks were asking some questions about, you know, how to, prep metal models or whatever. So I think, you know what, let me just go ahead and do it. Cause it's been a while since I've done metal models and then I can, you know, speak intelligently about it. Well, you know, when you don't get what you want, you get experience. That's kind of where I'm at right now. I just uh, spent some frustrating time this evening realizing that had I just purchased some, some uh, plastic models or some, um, Oh gosh. I, I'm not a hundred percent because I'm fighting this cold. So I'm really struggling. To keep some it. resin, some resin yeah. from AIM. Yeah. Just words. They're hard for me right now. Uh, yeah. Some resin models. I'd be done with this project right now and on to the next thing. So kind of kicking myself a little bit, but yeah. So uh, I have these models mostly painted. I'm working on final details and stuff. And, you know, I knew that putting them on a flight stand once they were all painted up and stuff would be a challenge just because of their weight. Right. So you have the option of, you know, weighting the bases and that kind of thing, or using the extended bases. But I thought I'd be extra clever and and just use uh, ball bearings and magnets, somewhat like uh, uh, Doug did on his um, his sabers. He did that with his metal sabers. It worked out real good. Yeah. We we played with those. It's fine. You know, you just tilt the aircraft on the ball bearing. It's at the top of the um, the flight stand instead of tilting the flight stand for advantage stat, uh, state, and it works yeah. out pretty well. So that was my intent. I thought, okay, no big deal. I'm just going to go ahead and paint them up and I'll stick a ball bearing on and we'll be done with it. So that's kind of where I was tonight. I thought, well, I've got a little bit of time. Let me, let me drill out a little bit of material right where that flight stand hole is and put a ball bearing in there and get, you know, just get that part done and move on. Now, if I was really smart, I would have done this before I painted them, of course, because, you know, I know I'm going to be drilling into my already painted models. But I thought, no, no, no big deal. Any messes I make there, I'll just clean up. No problem. Well, all of this idea presumes that the spot where that peg goes in the uh, molded model is the center of, you know, center of balance <laughs> for the yeah. uh, for the aircraft and it's way off, man. So I... You know, of course, I drilled out the, I drilled out holes in every single one of my aircraft and put the ball bearings in before I realized, oh, you know, I should probably test that and found that it was way off. Yeah, so that's kind of a bummer. So then I thought, well, I've got this one kind of extra spare, if you will, because I lost the landing gear for it anyway, which is a whole nother pain with the metal models. So I thought, well, let me let me just drill a new station hole farther back and uh, see how that goes, see how hard that's going to be. Cause you can really only go so far back and you know, I didn't figure I need to go that far back anyway, but so I'm pretty close to the trailing edge of the wing in the middle of fuselage. I drill again and that's too far back and I barely went that far, but so it just requires a slight adjustment, but I'm so over drilling holes in my aircraft. Now I think what I might do is just um, fill the holes I made with some green stuff and moisten yep. up moisten one of those pegs and stick it in there while it's still soft to uh, make the impression of that little triangular, you know, peg. Yeah. Yeah. Let that, let that dry. I'll sand it, shape it up. So it's not all bulging out and is relatively smooth on the bottom. Just, I'll probably just prime and paint that little bit of, um, 
green stuff once it's hardened. And I'll just use the uh, either weighted bases, small bases, or the big bases. And yeah. uh, if I do the weighted bases, I'll have to I'll have to look at some tutorials on exactly how that's done. I know that comes with its own challenges and stuff, but they're pretty heavy models. So there's you know tilting them without at the very least one of those larger uh, flight stand bases is is it's just not going to work. So I don't, I don't think I want to mess around with the ball bearings anymore. And I, and I would suggest anybody that's going to try that technique with a um, with a heavy model for the same reasons, just don't do, don't be like me. <laughs> do it ahead of time with a test model. <laughs> I always test paint, but I didn't think to test that part. So less. Yeah, it, but you got to be honest. I mean, you would think that the physics would hold that that where that that peg was originally drilled was the center of balance, but you know, not always so much. I mean, I can see exactly how that could happen. I was messing with the Johnny Red um, <laughs> Russian things when they first came out, and I got that the uh, the Falcon Squadron. And, and I started, started trying to get them where I wanted. And I got my, the first two MIGs built and I got them painted and I did a similar thing. You know, I didn't test them on the flight stand. I just assumed that they're going to work on the flight stand. Um, they didn't, they, the, the holes are just so freaking loose that, um, the only workaround that I've found with them, um, other than I, you know, I bought some, some resin MIGs to replace them with, but just for the purpose of using those two models, um, that I had already painted, um, I put a little bit of the masking tape around some of my flight stands up around the top, just to kind of snug that up as a, as a kind of a, just a field fix for, for using the models. But to be honest, I knew that the resin ones were coming. So the, the metals models have anything I own that's metal has been pushed to the, to the back, to, to the, to the, quite honestly, to the probably will never get used queue. Um, I'm just having so much luck with, uh, the aim resin ones that are coming out and with, um, with the resin models that are coming out from Warlord that I'm just, I'm going to be one of those guys that's going to be a fence sitter until it comes out in resin. Um, I'm probably just not going to buy it. I just, I, I despise the metal that much. I mean, that's not a dig on Warlord. Um, all metal models are that way. I've, I've, I've never been a fan of metal models all the way back to when all models were metal. I just always found them frustrating and difficult to work with and plastic and resin is just such a superior material to model with. And when your time's limited, you know, like ours is, you know, we're, we're both working guys with, you know, families and careers and stuff like that. It's just, you just, you just don't want to lose freaking 10, 12 hours working a workaround on something that costs 25 bucks. To be honest, it's just, it's I'd rather spend twenty five bucks. It's just another reason to celebrate the coming of the resin stuff. So I'll be oh, looking forward to that. Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I'd be done with this. It, it, my six aircraft have turned into five, and I've had to redo portions of it. It's just it's been extra time consuming by itself. Maybe that wouldn't be a big deal because I still like hobbying and you know dinking around with the stuff. But now I'm on a deadline because March I need to have kind of a lot of airplanes painted up. What I've committed myself yep. to, and uh, now this is becoming sort of a you know, it's slowing me down. I'm getting kind of pissed. So I want to get, yeah. get this done and get, get to the next batch I got to work on. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I can see exactly how that's frustrating. Like I went and um, there was a small typo on the, the warlord site a while back and I got the Pierre Klosterman book based on Andy Chambers recommendation, uh, the big show. And it was a great book. And as soon as I saw it, you know, I knew Klosterman was already an ace um for blood red sky so i went ahead and snapped it up and without thinking or without checking i just looked at the pulled up the the i think they're spitfire mark 10s that you know that he flies and i pulled them up on the warlord site and at the time they said resin models um i think it was a typo or it's either resin or plastic it didn't say metal so as soon as i looked at it, i was like oh cool I, I guess they were you know they probably got those the same time they did the first spitfire batch without thinking about asking the community you know um and i made the assumption i bought them got them looked at them said no i'm probably gonna give those away doug <laughs> i'm uh, doing the frustration the metal ones i'll just wait and buy some from aim freaking um to go with uh, the clusterman card so well, i mean you, i'm just you, that dead set against them when you do your italian ju87s just uh do yourself a favor wait till they're either in resin if they come out you know if they're available before you need them yeah or you know get you get your ones from aim and get that done that should be an easy paint too because i think uh I think the Italian paint schemes for those JU, JU87Rs are pretty simple. I don't think. Yeah, they are. They're basically the 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 sand brown Italian color with the the white aeronautica stripe, um, you know, halfway down the fuselage. Most of the ones I've seen, just with the you know the 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 fascist logos on the wings, so they don't have those complicated you know green spot splotchy schemes that a lot of the the Machis ran around with and some of the the 79s. So 
Um, and probably because they got them and painted them quick to get them in service. What do you think? But, um, you think I should abandon this metal model project and and just rip, just start again with? Some if I was you, knowing how fast you paint, I, that's exactly what I do. I would start spending my time with. I would I would kindly put those up on a shelf somewhere. Just me speaking, and and just order a batch from Aim and work on something else that you got in your queue. I've got uh, I've got a couple of one tens in my queue. I could do right now, and yeah. I can just uh, pitch those to the side. Well, because I know how, I know you're like me. If you end up with an end product that you don't like, even if it looks decent to most people, looks good to most people, you're not gonna play it. It's you're gonna build something else. Yeah, it's going to bother, bother you. And it's exactly what I do. That's why I said, you know, those first two MIGs I painted, I love them. I even put some, you know, high speed, you know, found some of the, the decorative um, uh, slogans to put down the plane. And, 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 and I like the way they look, but I was just like, I'm just not going to play them because they're, they're tippy. I've got to put a big base on them. No, I'm just going to, I'm going to wait till a resin model comes out. I'm going to get that. And, and that's what I'm going to play. So, but that's, you know, that's my thing. It's just, it, I wouldn't have bought wildcats. You know, I've been working on wildcats for, um guadalcanal already and um i would not have bought wildcats if there was only metal wildcats out there on the market i bought the aim wildcats and i can't be happier i can't wait till warlord starts producing everything in resin to be honest it's gonna be great so, I, I it, it sucks because I, I you know sunk some time into these that you know could have otherwise been a little farther along but lesson learned it's uh we'll get there and, and if, once i'm cranking along on resin models i'll get them all done in time and i'm going to take the whole yeah. week of thanksgiving off and, and i'm going to have the week of christmas off and i'll get a lot of hobby time Yep. During, during those yeah, I'm looking holiday at, weeks. I'm looking at, yeah, that's, I'm looking at scheduling that time, too. i got some other competing projects with school. Um, you know, i got some big photo shoots that I've got coming up next year that I've got to plan from scratch. But I'm going to make sure I'm just really litigious with my time and, and figure out exactly, you know, what that schedule is looking like and how to program it out. So speaking of um, Stukas and the um, Regio Aeronautics, um you guys played some games the other day you and um doug did you you played some of the um the adepticon missions that that um doug has scripted out so far and can you tell me about that how, how did it go man yeah it was fun uh we essentially play tested the first um the first mission of several that we intend to put together for this malta table the big showcase for airstrike and for the italian stuff at uh, adepticon and we'll talk about, we should probably talk about that in greater detail but you know just with a general vision for that table is and how all that came to be but at least talk about what we've uh, we've done just recently just playing you know because we've been coming up with uh, mission ideas based on historical events in the battle of malta between 40 and 42 uh we've come up with several scenarios and um you know the great thing about it we've talked about this in previous episodes when you think about what happened in malta not only do you have some great air battles but there's lots of opportunities to um, exercise the rule sets and stuff for airstrike with ground, you know, ground attacks, you know, bombing runs and stuff like that. So that's what we did. The very first mission is probably the most uh, introductory one. In fact, let me back up a little bit. What we did uh, just, just to kind of familiarize, familiarize ourselves with how we believe the airstrike rules work. We each, uh, pl we played a game, a single game where I flew, I, I, had aircraft and he exercised just the flak and the light flak and the the heavy flak barrages because yeah, so you guys did kind of like a crawl walk run yeah yeah kind of like a mission zero or whatever just for airstrike yeah. so that that wasn't like an added complicated you know condition of the game so and it was kind of interesting because we learned a lot of stuff it's kind of neat little things like you know how uh you know, your fighter planes can dive under the big flak barrage because they're not affected when they're at uh, when they're disadvantaged, and of course they climb back up once they get past it and stuff. Uh, whereas you know your laden your laden aircraft can't do that; they just have to suck it up and fly right through the box barrage. You know, <laughs> so it's yeah. pretty neat. Um, the barrages weren't terribly dangerous or anything, but you know they took a a slight toll. Uh, so, and it was interesting too. Once we actually pulled played a full game, I think we played probably a couple of full games where he flew uh, um, uh, RAF aircraft and I continued to fly the Axis stuff. And uh, he moved, you know, he learned better how to position the barrage and work that stuff. And, and uh, you know, he was flying gladiators, which had their own kind of tricky abilities. They have, he had tight turn cards, plus the biplane mechanic allows them an extra turn at the beginning of their move. So they were, they were pretty nimble and uh, they were hard to tail. And uh, I think, what damage he may have suffered 
probably came mostly from the turret weapons on my bombers. I had I had difficulty really uh, much to them with my fighter aircraft. And, uh, but it was it was, was that just trying to get into position or and there's some, you know some of that because this guy's turned you know I'm thinking where they expecting where they're going to be so that I can set up a position, to, but then you know they have a couple extra turns and it was uh, made it tough. Now if I think kind of like in jets if they are, were close enough to me, close enough to my fighter aircraft, they couldn't climb for advantage. So if I could knock them down, I could keep them down. But getting a tailing yeah. solution on them was often pretty challenging. Yeah. So, and what was Doug playing again? Playing gladiators. Oh, they're just the gladiators. Yeah, got it. That, that was, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. A, like that first scenario. It represents um, some of the first strikes on Malta, where it was just the Italians versus a very yeah. small complement of uh, really outdated aircraft for the RAF there on Malta. And uh, I, I'd have given anything to see Doug flying a biplane, just just knowing his feelings. <laughs> I like to try to trigger him. I think I sent him a picture today of, of, uh, you know, some beautiful artwork of gladiators over Malta, you know, just, he didn't respond, but I like to try to just push his buttons on those. But, it's uh, funny, you know, what the world is triggered by and what Doug is triggered by. And, um, definitely it's, it's for some reason it's biplanes. It just triggers the hell out of him. Right. <laughs> but it was, it was a pretty good thing because, uh, you know, testing that mission. So it's a pretty basic mission. It's very similar to one of the basic missions in the, um, in, in the airstrike book, uh, modified to, uh, really what's modified about it is, uh, the specified elements representing certain, you know, the, the specific units that were involved. And of course the specified aircraft being the, uh, the SM 79s and the, uh, C 200s on the axis side and then the gladiators on the RF RAF side. Um, and then the deployment stuff was very specified because it's supposed to reflect, you know, all of a sudden, here come these bombers at very high altitude and these slow climbing gladiators have to, you know, get off the ground and get up to altitude to try to do something about it. And uh, when you read accounts of those early war, you know, they would have some early warning because of radar and stuff, but uh, they would have to fly to the South, climb to the South so that they could turn around and, and, and inter try to interdict bombers as they'd actually, you know, release their bombs and were, and were departing. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting. So hit, uh, Doug's really good with all the game mechanics. You know, as everybody knows who listens to the show, he's our he's our our game mechanics guru, and uh, he's put a lot of thought. So I did a lot of the research on you know where these aircraft were, what kind of things they were doing, and when. And then he translates that into game mechanics that reflect that, but are also workable in the game. And uh, real clever uh, stuff with um, the deployment, the specified deployment things you have to do to sort of reflect that, and then also. Um, where the targets are uh, based on, you know, what kind of targets are going, we're going, we're actually being hit during this time frame. So there's a couple of airfields and stuff and playing it out helped us realize some adjustments that needed to be made. And it made it uh, even more fun. Uh, you know, things that you can't, I don't think appreciate or, or really um, come to expect until you actually move models on the table. Like, Oh, you know what? We need to, we need to line these targets up and they need to be, you know, 18 inches apart, you know, versus they were spread laterally or, you know, I, it doesn't not a very good visual for uh, uh, podcasting, but by virtue of playing the game a couple of times, he was able to make some some minor tweaks to what was already a very good and well thought out mission uh, plan, and I think it's going to just make it all the better. So the idea is that eventually we'll have you know, several scenarios like that 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 uh, reflect notable battles, notable air battles during the course of the campaign. And uh, you get to, you know, try out some, uh, I guess I, I call it, you know, kind of baby bird, right? We're going to, we're going to yeah. baby bird you the information. So if you really want to play this campaign as close to, you know, matching what we've uncovered through research with a BRS rule set, you're going to have, you know, mission one, mission two, three, four, five, six, and it's going to kind of walk you through that and tell you, okay, field these aircraft and field them like this with this deployment, put these targets on the ground. And it ought to be a pretty good time. This very first mission certainly was, and they only get more exciting and interesting and more varied as you go. Yeah. Did you guys have any of the Pico terrain painted up yet to play with? I have any painted up, but we did bring some and uh, we yeah. put those on the table and they are 
really well scaled for uh, what we intend to do. So. Yeah. I, like I said, I was thinking about getting a 3D printer and Doug sent me a big pile of Pico terrain, you know, in that package with the rulers that, that he sent up. And it was kind of like, I started looking at the, the you know, the, the cost benefit analysis of owning a resin printer and everything that comes with it. And I was like, nah, that's just going to hit pause on that this year. I just don't have time to one, invest the time two. It, I, I to to recoup the investment out of what I'm actually going to make with it. It's just not going to happen. So um, I'm definitely going to go to the Pico. I, I love the little Pico factories on the bridge, and I, I can't wait to see some of the other stuff. Because from what I was looking at, just you know, holding it in my hands, I was like, this stuff is just perfect. You know, if you, not sure you where uh... this stuff painted miscellaneous, you know, factories and bridges, and so uh, I'm looking down the road and you know, just doing little tank sets and stuff like that. I think it'll be perfect. Oh yeah, Doug brought down uh, a bunch of the Pico uh, terrain, metal the metal terrain, like we've discussed in a previous episode. But he also brought a whole bunch of um, acrylic stuff. I, I presume from Litco, but uh, part of that were these clear, uh, like probably forty millimeter discs. It might have been a little bigger, but they were just clear, clear discs. And he uh, glued some. Uh, well, he, we may not have glued them on because they weren't painted, but he he put some. Um, some of the pico armor on top of that clear disc as if it you know how we'd imagine once painted it would be attached to that clear disc and it was perfect it was you know maybe it it was somewhere probably between 40 and 60 millimeter in diameter and uh yeah. for an airfield there were little the little hangers and the little buildings and stuff that reflected airfield i suppose on the disc itself you can maybe even you know sketch on a little you know runway you know pattern but uh, yeah. that represented an airfield, and I, I think he had um, he had some other look like uh, fuel tanks or something, uh, big fuel storage. Buildings or yeah, whatever. he sent me a couple of those. Yeah, so, and so we, big, we used those. vertical tanks, uh, the jet A tanks or whatever you call them, jet fuel tanks. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, he had some other things he was trying out just to see, you know, make, you know, game wise, what would really kind of make sense to reflect what was happening, and uh, he had some. I believe they were from Litco. These um, different uh, like damage markers, you know, uh, little explosions, little fiery explosions, and they yeah. were in different sizes. You could tell the difference between. We decided, you know, the smaller ones were point hits, and the bigger ones were area hits. And you know, depending on how many of those were placed on the target, you could get a sense for um, how much damage had been done, and that was necessary. Yeah. That helped reflect too, like how much uh, flak was active, because I guess some of that some of that stuff comes away once you start receiving those hits. So that yeah. was cool. And it, it kind of looked yeah. neat too. It was uh, because, you know, you actually have this sort of 3d, 3d, although it was, it was, um, you know, colored red, uh, colored. Um, yeah. I've got plastic. some of those, the smoke and fire markers from Litco. And, and yeah. now that you mentioned that I'm like think, sitting here thinking, yeah, that's perfect. We're like one step up from chits. But they were kind of yeah. cool because they were little visual representations of what was happening as, as the target took damage and stuff. So that was that was neat. I mean, he we had, use them in 40k and 30k, and they're they're perfect, you know, to indicate you know somewhere something's happened. You know, you got a you know, vehicle on fire, you get this little fire that sits on top of it. it's perfect. So and and they're a little bit under scale actually for 28 mil gaming. So I can imagine for for blood red skies for ground targets are perfect. We've been talking a little bit about uh, you kind of what to do uh, in the game to represent. Uh, the uh, loss of flak and stuff and you know we were talking about maybe you would add add chits or take chits away but you know some of these targets might have a lot of flak uh you know flat that representing flak guns that are individually lost as they take point hits and stuff yeah and, and uh the uh idea he, i think he came up with it might be the best working solution is have numbered chits that say you know, light flak one through six and same thing with heavy flak. And you just change the chit out for the appropriate number as the flak takes losses. Oh yeah. That would be sweet. I think uh, he's looking into having Litco or somebody like that, maybe just lasered actually make him some custom or at least price out what it would cost to have several sets of those made. Cause that, that would probably be pretty handy and just a nice visual marker. Oh, absolutely. Any you know anybody could just use you know numbered you know a die on yeah. the top of the target to reflect that too. Maybe use different colored uh, dice to reflect you know one's heavy flak and one's light flak. 
but you know, it's just kind of cool. There's, I, I've always find that kind of stuff pretty neat. All the little gadgets you can pick up and stuff to make your table look good. Dude, I, I, the first thing I did when I got on Bloodwood Skies was start buying gaming aids from Litco, just from activated markers with, you know, the hammers and sickles and Luftwaffe crosses and you name it. There's just so much stuff out there. The other thing I found is there's a lot of stuff that's made for um, for other Warlord systems, like the um, the you know the dice that are made by Warlord for their um, bolt action. They're they're just different looking, but those dice work just as well for Blood Red Skies because they just got a symbol and a six. So if you're not a big fan of the Blood Red Skies um, dice that are out there, check out some of the other Warlord dice. I mean, they're perfect. So, but, you know, there's all kinds of markers out there for the other game systems that work for this too. So it's going to be see, neat seeing what we can repurpose or what we can design ourselves. And and I know Doug's just like me and you. It, it's, it's We walk around with tackle boxes full of gaming aids for 30K. We're going to do the same thing for Blood Red Skies. So yeah, it just he, makes it he, more fun to keep track of. He even had some kind of, they look like little explosion markers, but they were splashes of water to reflect uh, splash barrages. We didn't play any, yeah, we didn't play any games over water or any, you know, attacks on ships or anything, but, you know, that's, that's going to be a part of the, the, the scenario pack. You know, there's going to be missions in there that include stuff like that. So he, he brought all that stuff down just to show me and everything, but I was like, dang, man, he had quite an assortment of different little things like that that could look good on the table. Yeah. So um, I noticed some chatter between you two. I've been so busy with school that I've only been like answerly around the chat and around the email, but you guys have found, it looks like somebody that's designing a custom multi map for you. What's oh, what's yeah. going on there? We've talked about tiny war gaming or tiny war games yep. before, because uh, I think uh, at least a couple of the mats I have, I, one of my ocean mats is from them. I think my, my, uh, that, that, that Dover that War War One kind of looking, yeah. yeah. I think I thought it was a World War One one. This has got all the trench lines and everything on it. That's actually that one's actually from uh, Deep Cut Studios. Oh, okay. Two two yeah. of my mats are from Tiny War Games, and they have a Malta mat. Actually, they have at least one Malta mat that you can go on and buy right now. That's yeah. um, it. But it's just uh, Grand Harbor. Yep. And it's the I've scales. Yeah, the scales probably a little off if you want to play anything bigger than that. It's uh, you know, it's it's kind of zoomed in kind of a lot. Uh, yeah, probably more than you would more than you see probably in most. I mean, it, it's usable for blood red skies, but of course you're only going to see Grand Harbor, right? Um, yeah. So I, I, on their website though, they had some, you know, like a gallery of custom mats and stuff, and they show in one of their pictures. It's not on their, it's not something you can click on and add to your cart, but there is a a picture in their gallery of some guys playing on a mat that looks like it's uh, certainly Malta, but it's a much. Uh, zoomed out much more zoomed out scale so it includes more than just yeah. you know valletta harbor or valletta and grand harbor but it's got you know maybe part of Luca is in there anyway these other points of interest so we know it can be done and of course they advertise on their website that hey look give us whatever you want we can make it and we can make it any material any size just tell us what you want and in their in their gallery for things like that they show everything from you know maps civil war era maps put on to a mat to you know satellite imagery right so kind of everything yeah. in between so i just emailed him you know, it says hey contact us here contact our, our artist directly with your idea so i simply said hey look we would really like to have a four by eight mat and i thought of you because you, yep. you were saying it'd be nice to have a much larger mat so we kind of yep. a bit a bit of a compromise instead of you know eight by twelve four Two, by, by six yeah yeah a four by eight if you at the scale we want to do it in four by eight actually gets you a really pretty awesome chunk yeah it does it gets you a lot of that yeah it gets you everything six by six by twelve is probably or six by eight is probably a little bit big yeah and, it might and be plus it would be difficult to work yeah it'd be difficult to work around but i think Especially four by eight we can get to challenged with like short limbs <laughs> right yeah and four by eight is gonna you could reach all the table and you know if you're only doing four by six or four by four you just let part of the mat hang off the edge of the table no big deal but uh in a it, if you orient what we found is at the scale we want to do and at four by eight you can you can rotate the map onto the that rectangle in a way that you capture everything from grand harbor all the way down to the southern coast like where the um there was like a seaplane base and a couple of yep. airfields that are noteworthy for the campaign. 
are all captured. Kind of the main corridor of bombing activity is all right there. So uh, we sent we sent that, and really what what we sent was um, just a you know, like a some, Google Earth image is what it looked like. Yeah, it was like a screenshot of uh, yeah Google yeah. Maps really, and and just yep. just to show look here's the here's the dimensions we're looking at here's the orientation we're looking at what can you do, and uh, Ivan's the artist he shot us an email right back saying. Yeah, I can do it. This is what it's going to cost for the artwork, and this is what he's got to really do. He's he shot back aerial imagery, you know, modern day satellite imagery or aerial photograph imagery from Google Earth or whatever, and he already has artwork because the other mats he's done that cover portions of that yeah. of that layout. But then there's portions that uh, you know are 21st century image. You know, I mean, tw- it's so he's got to rework all that manually, yeah. I guess, to make it look like you know 20th century Malta. Yep. And uh, he found on his own uh, several uh, aerial photographs from the war of what within would have been Luftwaffe targets, you know, or Axis targets anyway. Yep. And uh, also an old uh, late uh, 19th century map of the same area. So his idea is that he can combine, you know, these images in a way to as reference to uh, make yep. what would otherwise be a modern image of Malta look like it did in 1940, right? So pretty exciting. Yeah. I also sent him some additional reference material today. I found some um I found some aerial reconnaissance photos from the from the Axis uh in that time frame of uh, how far airfield and a reference drawing from the time that just kind of showed where different uh, RAF units were based and where they dispersed their aircraft and stuff. So that'll I think help our artists understand you know, where these different points of interest are in relation to everything else on that same map sheet. So we'll see. I, yeah. I think, uh, I don't, it says give them a little bit of time to do this work. So I don't know what to expect. We have plenty of time though, cause we're months away still, but I'm really kind of excited about the yeah. process. What was the ballparking you guys at? A couple hundred bucks, probably just for the, the artwork. So it's going to okay. be an expensive mat. I expect <laughs> the mat itself is probably going to be, you know, a hundred bucks. I mean, you look at any of their map, any of their mats yeah. that they produce in mouse pad material that are four by six, they run right around, you know, I think between 80 and a hundred bucks. So. Yeah. But once the artwork's in the can, this is something that down the road, other people, they can put up on the website and other people are going to be able to order the same thing that they wanted or probably portions thereof and, and not pay the artwork fee. That's right. We're benefiting to some degree from the fact that that artwork's already been done, at least in portions yeah. of the map we're asking for. So that's helping us out. Yeah, because I was wondering about this whole process, too, because I know that um, the guys at Deep Cuts will print just about anything you can send them. So I, I'm going to start a little bit of a dialogue with them, too, because down the road, I really want a Guadalcanal map. And I just want um, uh, Savo Island, uh, you know, that that'll cover the northern slot coming into there. Um, it'll cover Tulagi and the Florida Islands up north and just the that northern um northwest portion of guadalcanal you know all, all you know where henderson field was all the way over to lunga point and you'd end up with a map that was probably covered 60 percent, maybe 55 percent with water uh, maybe actually a little bit more than that and then some some land things so i was pulling up you know just google earth imagery of what that area looks like today and of course it's it's completely built up but you know i've got some photoshop skills so i was pulling into photoshop and saying, okay, let me just take this town away here. Let me clone stamp out these these villages, here, you know, the, these little settlements here. And and I was seeing definitely how we could possibly go down that route. But of course, I don't know, you know, starting with a how that would work, starting with a Google image, and you know, do you owe Google any rights and that kind of stuff. So I definitely need to talk to the guys at Deep Cuts about what they will print, what they won't print. But there's some there's some possibilities there. But if this turns out really well. We may just go down the route as a podcast, maybe in the future, of saying, you know, you could even kickstarter this thing. Who wants a multimat? You know, this is this is what it's going to cost us to to put this thing together. Or who wants a who wants a midway map? Who want well, midway is the ocean, but <laughs> one little island. But you know what I'm saying? You know, these other campaigns we could do down the road that that has substantial pieces of turf on them, and say, who wants this? Are you interested in it? If you are, just run a small, teeny tiny kickstarter that just basically covers the art cost, and then. You know, the only thing you're putting in is the cost of getting one map printed um, and, you know, 10 bucks extra. And then we could we could spread this out over a lot of people. And we're not going to be able to pull that off for Malta, but it's definitely something we could do in the future. It would be pretty cool if, um, you know, when this is all done and 
if enough people see what we've done with Malta at Adepticon and maybe future future things, and of course hearing us talk about it and stuff, that you know they're inspired enough to you know paint the aircraft, read about you know read about the the actions in Malta, and you know maybe that mat will be available for them, and it won't be as big a hassle because it's already done. But uh, that's cool. Maybe you know we should probably talk a little bit about what the vision is for um, our Malta table and maybe others for Adepticon because I know we've kind of beat around the yeah. bush a little bit about you know what you know what we're doing but uh we've not i don't know that we've talked with any specifics about how we came up with the idea and what we're thinking about yeah. doing all together yeah yeah well you know we're definitely going to do several malta tables i mean that's that's an offing um they may not be all covered with a malta specific mat but we're going to definitely have several malta scenarios but i know that we've also been talking you know midway's coming out that time frame or will be just just about to be released so there's definitely going to be some pacific stuff that we're going to bring but the pacific honestly you roll out a, a c mat and maybe put a couple islands on it call it good but um i know warlord is going to be releasing the stalingrad stuff you know that time frame and they'd have asked me um personally john russell has to make sure that we've got at least one good russian mat there you know not that we're we're helping warlord push the product but are doing tie-ins for them specifically but we just want to make sure that you know where warlord is as a company because they've been so supportive of us we're gonna we're gonna do the opposite you know with with our event we're going to script it so that if Stalingrad's a hot thing for bolt action, that we'll definitely, you know, while we're Malta is our focus, we'll definitely have some Russian wargaming there. Um, I think between me and you, we could we could probably field uh, probably a Stalingrad map tonight if we if you showed up at my house and you wanted to play any of the airplanes. I know I could. Um, out of the Russians I have, and I've got a couple Luftwaffe squadrons that are that are Eastern Front squadrons. We could already get that together. But I think that's definitely the route we're going to go. Of course, we're not completely boxed in yet. But um, the big thing we're waiting on is hear from the community. So um, I know we got listeners out there. I know we've got people that are active online uh, chat. So um, just get out there, shake the branches and start telling me, you know, who is coming and what do you want to see? And um, are you interested in, you know, getting together? Are you interested in making Adepticon a big thing? And um, as big as you guys are going to want us to build it, we're, we're willing to build it, guys. So just show us that you're going to be there and, and we can get something put together talked to john some months ago when the, we at first decided it was something we wanted to try to do just to see what his reaction would be if it was something they wanted us to do or you know because it was all just something that we'd all we, the three of us had been talking about yep. so I, I talked to him and, i talked to him and said look here's here's kind of what we're thinking that we could have you know several tables maybe five tables and each table is uniquely showcasing a specific maybe new release or newish release for what's going on with blood red skies. And so, you know, Malta was kind of key to that because you're talking about the airstrike drop, but then yep. also, also knowing that, you know, midway was on the horizon. We're saying, you know, maybe we could do a midway table uh, now with Stalingrad. Maybe we could do a Stalingrad table. We could do a, also a, um, uh, galley table. And then at each of those tables, people who either signed up ahead of time or just happened to show up, if, if they, you know, happen to stumble around like we did last year and find out that there's this thing called Blood Red Skies and if they want to come around and have some pizza, they can get a demo game. If the, from something as simple as that, like some guys who know nothing about Blood Red Skies and want a demo game, all the way up to folks who know a great deal about Blood Red Skies and just want to see something maybe a little more interesting, uh, could walk up and see, you know, an awesomely laid out table and all the aircraft for that particular table painted and... um you know, so you could just play yeah. with, you know, you could show up without anything and still play. Yeah. And, and, and uh, as best we can, and, you know, of course, we got a lot of work to do with Malta, but to um, be able to play with the aircraft on that table that are actually accurate to, you know, reflect the aircraft that are actually yeah. in, in that campaign. So that's kind of exciting. I mean, yeah. I kind of, that's my excitement is it's, is it necessary for me to paint? you know, uh, 12, 18 more ME 109s, different variants. I have Battle of Britain 109s that we could certainly put in there. They're 109s, but I'd like to be able to place aircraft on a table that accurately reflect the ones that were there. Yeah. And we, and we may be yeah. able to pull that off for the other the other tables as well. Malta's the big. Yeah, I think we'll be able to pull it off for Stalingrad. And to be honest, I think if we do a Pacific, Matt, I, I, I think that's completely in the realm of the doable. By then I'm going to have, I've already got Corsairs painted. Um, I'll have, um, my batch of wildcats, which is everything's done except the canopies will be done. Um, I've got a batch of hellcats. Of course, we don't have a card for that, but that hasn't stopped us ever. 
Um, we could always do a Hellcat card. I've got two squadrons uh, Zeke's painted. I know you've got a squadron of Zeke's, and I'm planning on investing here in the the next two months. Other than getting some Italians for the for the Malta campaign, I'm also going to be getting. I just have this this. I really want to do some float planes and figure out some ideas for float plane missions. So I'm definitely going to get a PBY. I'm going to get a roof. Um, I may even get a, a Jap Emily. Um, so get some different float planes, and then I, I've got to do some Bettys. So um, and that's that's definitely in the cards. I've already got the um, the decals for the Bettys and the PBYs um, waiting, and of course the roofs are just you know converting some 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 Zeke decals. But, kicking um, that float plane idea around with Doug, if there was a way to work that into a smaller scenario, or even if it would instead of being a maybe a separate scenario, if there was a way to make float plane somehow uh, a buff, an in-game buff or something. I you know I'm just spitballing because I don't you know, but he's our he's our rules guy who could chew on that and actually make it something that's makes sense. But you know, I was suggesting something like you know if you if you if you lose an aircraft or something, but you can get a float plane to a specific point on the map in time, then, you know, maybe that plane's not lost after all, or, or maybe you, you get, you, you go away a boom chit that you otherwise would yeah. have had on your squad or I, something, you know, something like yeah, that. Yeah. I think float planes would be a really interesting element when you're looking down the road, doing some, you know, some games that, that kind of caveat off of each other and build in a scenario like we're eventually looking to go where, you know, things that happen this turn affect the next game. And it could be things like, you know, the float plane that gets across the board um, the next time you play. Okay. So now your area, you know, now your location is known and these guys are going to get reinforcements faster than they would have if you had shot that float plane down. I think those would be interesting mechanics from a campaign perspective to add in there. Oh yeah. And, yeah. Um, I think it'd so. be neat to have them flying around on the table where there's, th where there's other action going on too, versus it being a, like a, you know, the recce mission where it's just, you know, single recce aircraft yep. being chased down by some fighters or whatever. I I imagine when I think about it, especially for Midway, because, you know, both sides had those, and that was an important thing that was going on after the battle. Um, yep. If uh, somehow there was a mechanic that allowed you to have some advantage or, you know, where there was some payoff by using it, but th that silly float plane could show up and fly across the board in some, some manner while all this other stuff is going on, you know, and maybe – maybe as a defender or something like that, you have to make a decision. Like, do I, do I peel off a couple of planes and go shoot down that thing? Or do I stay in this fight? Yeah. Or, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm not the, I'm not the right guy uh, game mechanics wise to ferret all that out. But I, I just visually, I think it'd be super cool. Cause like you, I, I like those models. I think it'd be just kind of extra fun to have something like that show up. Yeah. Anything that's interesting on the board. I mean, I just, I want to eventually build it, get it out there and figure out a way game mechanic wise to make it fun to play just to just to be interesting and we could all sit there and throw zeeks and and wildcats at each other for freaking every game we play of midway but that's going to get boring after a while you know at some point you're going to want to integrate in those other other things that were going on um to demonstrate that so now that we got you know airstrike we've got submarines we've got surface targets we've got all kinds of other mechanics that we can work in and then when you start putting float planes and stuff like that in there it just gets more layered and more interesting Every scenario we've mentioned so far, with the exception of maybe Stalingrad, there's some legitimacy to probably some float plane stuff. I mean, you think about Battle of Britain, uh, even yep. even Korea. I mean, uh, with the R, uh, not the RB-29s, but the uh, you know the, the rescue uh, B-29s that had that, yep. that like uh, lifeboat that they could jettison uh, yep. to uh, you know maybe the Russian side of it wouldn't be a float plane, but it'd be like you know shooting down the strafing the downed pilots so that nobody could find out yeah. he was Russian. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, speaking about Midway, and um, I think that's where we'll wrap it tonight is, is just wanted to do a little bit of, of talking about Midway, the movie. I know you're planning on seeing it this weekend, um, possibly. And um, I did see it this week. You know, I, I went into it thinking, you know, huge eye roll. And I, I posted a review, which Doug was kind enough to edit for me. Um, guys, I, I'm a Marine. Um, I'm in college for a reason. Um, <laughs> so if you want to pick apart my spelling, my grammar, have at it, enjoy yourself. But um, after about three drinks last night, I just seen way too many reviews online from way too many people that were basically slamming it as a piece of garbage. And, you know, does the movie have flaws? Yes, the movie has flaws, but I don't think there's there's anybody out there in the military, military community that's going to find any war movie out there and they're not going to find flaws in it. 
But the one thing I did want to say, and I stressed in the review is, if you're not going to go see it because of what other people are saying, you're kind of cheating yourself here. Um, Midway was an amazing battle. Um, and and the way it's portrayed in there, yeah, there's a lot of CGI. Yeah, there's some there's a big, huge helping of Hollywood cheese put on top of it. But the one thing I wanted to say about it is from a purely historical perspective, um, the guys, whoever wrote the script, I don't know if it was the director himself, you know, the, the screenwriters working directly or if they had some people behind that were doing the historical stuff. But the fact of the matter is, as a guy who just read Shattered Sword a couple um, last month, I could tell that whoever wrote the script for this movie did not watch the 1970s Midway. And they actually did this thing called reading a book um, because they corrected a lot of his, those historical inaccuracies that were in the original Midway movie from the 70s and also that have that have existed in numerous tomes that have been written on Midway. So, um, you know, the, when when they attacked the Akagi, I think it had three or four planes on deck, which is what we believe actually happened. And it wasn't chocker block with airplanes. Um, they even covered the downed U.S. aviators getting picked up by a Japanese destroyer and their unfortunate demise. Um, it covered things that you just didn't see before. The big problem with the movie, and this is, I think, a problem for people who don't listen to this podcast. If you listen to this podcast, you're probably a fan of aviation in general. You probably understand what happened between 1940 and 1942. So going from um, Pearl Harbor to the Doolittle Raid, through Marshall Islands, Coral Sea, um, all the way up to the Midway Campaign. You, if somebody's moving you around that rather quickly, you know exactly what's going on. But I, I will say that the movie's runtime really impacted it. I, I think Coral Sea was seeing the Lexington smoking. That was, that was all the screen time that Coral Sea got on, other than a couple lines of dialogue between some people. So does it, is it the perfect movie? No, it's not. But is it a damn fun ride? Oh my God, it's a damn fun ride. Um, it, and I'm telling you, take, go, take your son. It's a clean movie. There's not a lot of language. It's just a lot of guns. Um, it's, it's kind of written in that 19, you know, 1960s war film kind of the genre, which really fits it. And I can tell you, Woody Harrelson and uh, Quaid, Dude, I, I've they their portrayals of Nimitz and Halsey were just I, for me personally were spot on, and there's some performances in the in the movie of secondary characters. You know, the the two main American aviators, two British actors that are pretty good actors, but they were really over the top of the movie. That almost made it a little bit painful to watch at times. But um, but the other guys that were playing the secondary characters, they just did an awesome job. The intel officer, the code breaking officer. All of those guys, it was just, it was really well put together. So don't cheat yourself. Um, definitely go see it. And um, I'm hearing, looking forward to hearing your uh, review when you go, Brett. That's cool. I told Sean today I wanted to go see that this weekend. Uh, one of the theaters near us is uh, playing it in 4DX, you know, where the seats move and you get oh, God. sprayed with fun. water and air and stuff. So we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's and Sean's probably going to really enjoy it. Christina loved it. Christina absolutely loved it. She's a pretty tough critic on films that are crap. And um, Christina just kind of looked at me and said, hey, that was World War II and it was a fun ride. Don't care if it had some flaws. You know, it was a good time. So um, definitely don't just listen to the critics. Don't, by, by all means, don't listen to Flickster and Rotten Tomatoes. Go make the opinion for yourself. If you're not going to see it, at least see it when it comes out on Blu-ray. Because if you're a fan of World War II avi aviation, you're, you're going to get a kick out of the movie. Um, you, you, you just can't watch the fuel lines and the, the hangar deck on the Akagi go and blow that carrier the way they chose to blow the carrier in this movie without just going, wow, that that's pretty damn cool. Yeah. It's CGI. Yeah. I know it's not real. Yeah. There's, it's not perfect, but man, it looked good. <laughs> it was really impressive. Um, and I can tell you that the Pearl Harbor scenes in it are, um, surprise, surprise, way better than the, um, Ben Hufleck film Pearl Harbor. <laughs> which was a god-awful movie. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see it. I'm hoping yeah. that... Uh, I, I tried to get to go see it uh, earlier, I think last weekend, the weekend before last, but I think Gavin was a little... He's like, yeah, I showed him the, I showed him a trailer, and I thought he'd be all for it. But, uh, yeah. I, well, I, the, the good thing is, Gavin, he will not... 
it, it, the movie doesn't stop once it starts. It takes a, there's a little bit of setup, you know, like there is with any movie. But once you get into fighting scenes, you kind of go from like, it's like, bam, the Doolittle raid, bam, a Marshall Island raid, bam, freaking Coral Sea, bam, Midway. I mean, and the, and the Pearl Harbor scene to begin the movie is, is pretty impressive. I and mean, you get to see um, the sinking of the, um, Arizona, uh, the, yeah, the Arizona. So it's um, it's a it's a pretty well done flick. I mean, yeah, there were some big flaws. You know, zeros don't fly, you know, below below the palm trees while they're strafing staff cars on Pearl Harbor. That just doesn't happen. And yeah, that stuff shouldn't be in there, but it's Hollywood. They're gonna do what they do. Um, I was even I've been I've been telling everybody that I've I've been really barfing watching the commercial, watching the the SPD do the tail slide. But um, when I watch the movie, um, he he's 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 trying to escape into the clouds and he does the tail slide to fall back into the clouds. so it is it is it would somebody ever done that in real life but probably not but is it plausible and out trying to outrun an aircraft and climb into a cloud yeah it's it's plausible um it's hollywood but it's still it's still plausible it was done well and um it's really good so give it a try tell us on the website what you think tell me if you hate my review tell me if you think i'm full of crap um, but I, I'm definitely telling you, um, if you haven't read Shattered Sword before Midway comes out, treat yourself. That is a that is a book you need to sit down and you need to get through because it is it is everything you want to know about Midway soup to nuts. What really happened there? So, but anyway, man, it's about nine fifty, and I think um, I think we're gonna pull the plug on it. You got anything else? That's it. Get yourself some uh, resin stukas. <laughs> <laughs> you heard that first from Brett, the model junkie. Just go ahead and get you some random stukas. So, John Russell, if you're out there, I know you're listening. Uh, get the guys turning and burn on getting some freaking metal stukas. I mean, getting some resin stukas cranked out quick. So, we're we're all in for we're warlord resin, but we're all getting kind of frustrated with some of the metal models. So, we need to we need to clean that out of the inventory. But uh, that's all we got tonight, Brett. Thanks for coming on. Um, I think we we put together a pretty good episode in um, our our you know illustrious leader's absence. But um, you take care of yourself and uh, let me know what you think of the movie when you get back, man. I will do. All righty. Out of here, guys. You guys have a good one. <laughs>